If you weren't here last week, and if you didn't watch online, I want to commend to you to go and do so, to listen to John Shearer. Uh, I spoke to a friend recently uh, who knows John well, and he said, we can't have John preach too often, otherwise we'd all be out of job. Uh, because John, John is just wonderful, uh, as I'm sure you were greatly blessed by his ministry. But today, following on from that, we've concluded John chapter 6, and here we find ourselves now in chapter 7. What we're doing is we're moving now really into the third year of Jesus' ministry. And I think a number of folks found it helpful at Easter when I kind of broke down across the Gospels um, what fits where. I've kind of tried to do that as simplistically as possible in this next slide of kind of where we are um, on this journey and what the Gospels cover. We've come now to the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry, which of course in the other Gospels is just utterly packed. We have the incredible um, transfiguration moments. We've got um, things like the Sermon on the Mount. We've got stacks of parables, healing miracles, the leper, the paralytic man. There's loads of stuff that the other Gospels recant that John doesn't. So we, we come to the end of this section and we now come to this part of Jesus beginning to travel south. He's withdrawn and now he's beginning to travel south. And we'll catch up. The other Gospels catch up shortly um, uh, in uh, Peria, where is just beyond the River Jordan, that's where they'll catch up with us. But we're beginning to start seeing this journey south. Luke 9 tells us that he goes south through uh, Samaria, through Samaritan land. So that's where we find ourselves. As we come to this passage, we come to two groups of people that I want us to look at today. We have Jesus' brothers and we have the Jewish leaders. And we're going to focus on the two of those as our two points today. Because there's something that they have in common. And neither group believe. Jesus' brothers don't believe at this point, And the Jewish leaders certainly don't believe. But their, their unbelief is manifested in very different ways. But the root cause, I think, is exactly the same. And I think is something very important for us to explore. And I think this is what John wants us to look at as we come to this passage. It's for us to explore more and more what is unbelief uh, and how do, we, how do we not succumb to it? How do we believe? So we start, we meet here. Um, Jesus' brothers want him to travel south to Judea. They want him to go to the festival of tabernacles uh, or booths. They want him to go and just start doing the miraculous. They want to see him heal. They want to see him do all sorts Leviticus chapter 23, from verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites on the 15th day of the seventh month uh, for the Lord's festival of tabernacles to begin. And it lasts seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly, do no regular work. For seven days present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth day hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to the Lord. It is the closing special assembly, do no regular work. The Feast of Tabernacles was present. It was a festival and a feast that delighted in God's provision and protection for the Israelites during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. For these seven days, people would live in temporary structures. They would live in tents. They would put them up everywhere. They would put them in alleys. They would put them on roofs. They would put them beside their house. Absolutely everywhere. And as with all these feasts, uh, with three of them specifically, people would pour into Jerusalem uh, throughout Judea, and we would just see crowds, multitudes and multitudes 
of people. Josephus, the historian, said it was the most celebratory of all the Jewish feasts and festivals. This was a happy occasion. It was a couple of weeks after the Day of Atonement. It was around harvest time. We're talking like October. And this was just joyful. This was a wonderful time to be around. All these tents going up, colorful, everything else, like little villages appearing in the streets. We know there's huge symbolism in the feast. I'd love to do a series on them at some point. But this feast points to the return of the Lord Jesus, the one who dwells, the one who tabernacles with his people. The promises that we find in, in like Revelation 21, uh, the place when, when we dwell with him, there will be no more death and suffering. He himself will wipe away every tear. That is ultimately the fulfillment of this um, festival. Jesus will tabernacle. He will dwell amongst us. Big gatherings. Jesus, a Jewish man by this point really well known. Uh, his brothers expect him to head south for the celebrations. They're expecting to see the miraculous and the big. So let's catch up with them. We'll read verses 3 to 5. Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the work you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Jesus' brothers, unsurprisingly, are ecstatic about the thought of being with this Jesus as he just keeps doing this miraculous stuff. They love it. They want to see more of it. I don't think any of that greatly surprises us. But then we come to that verse 5, and it's one of those whoa, 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 what kind of moments when we come to verse 5. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. These are, of course, Jesus' half-brothers, sons of Mary and Joseph. There was James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, not Iscariot, mentioned in Matthew 13. Poor Judas. A bit like Andrew's always known as the brother of Peter, Judas is always known as not being the really bad one. But we come to this, and we don't know a huge amount about Joseph, Simon, and Judas, although he's not the Iscariot. But James, of course, is one of the leaders of the church, we find in Acts 15. He would write one of the books of the New Testament. And John knows this well by the time of writing. He knows that uh, James becomes a great believer and leader in the church. So he knows what he's writing here in verse 5 is utterly shocking. But I don't believe John's purpose is to shock us. I think it's very deliberate. It's not a throwaway comment. But he wants us to know that at this point, the half-brothers of Jesus do not believe. He's teaching us. He's teaching us something about unbelief. And we've got this strange scenario that we're weighing up here where we've got their unbelief is producing excitement for the miraculous. How does that work? Leave Galilee, go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourselves to the world. It's interesting. The ESV says, because not even the brothers believed. So they're saying that the, the, the reason for them wanting Jesus to do the miraculous was because they didn't believe. Not just they loved it, but they didn't believe. And that makes it even harder for us to understand. 
It would be a lot easier for us to get if the brothers of Jesus turned around and went, pipe down, Jesus. Stop it. You're embarrassing. We don't like this. Just stop doing this. We don't believe in you. This is nonsense. Stop it. I could get, I could understand that. I would be able to make a bit more sense of that. You'd be like, fair enough. They don't believe. They don't want it. But they believe he can do great things. But they didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was, but they believed in his miracles. They're amazed by them. They love it. They want him to go to their spiritual hub, to the busiest of places, win more followers, amaze more people. And all of that stems from their unbelief. We'll come back to what all that means in a minute, but I want to pick up now the Jewish crowds and their unbelief. So I want to flick back to John chapter 5 and verses 16 to 18, and we see the root of the unbelief of the Jewish leaders. So because Jesus was doing these things from verse 16, sorry. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Many of the Jewish people in Jerusalem did not share the brother's excitement for Jesus miracles. He tells us in verse 1 of this passage, in 7, he didn't want to go to Judea because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. He knew fine well what was going on, and he didn't want to go there. As Jesus tells them in John 5, why are you trying to kill me? It's sorry, in verse 19 of this passage, why are you trying to kill me? And they ask him if he's demon-possessed. Jesus says that the rage the desire to kill him comes from the fact that he healed a paralyzed man, a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years on the Sabbath. And it has somehow just unleashed this tidal wave of just sheer rage. We pick up in verse 21 of John 7. I did one miracle and you were all amazed. But because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it didn't come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man whose whole, uh, a man's whole body on the Sabbath? This is the second kind of unbelief we come across. I find this unbelief a bit more easy to deal with because it's very different to the other brother's unbelief, or at least they certainly look different. One is excited for this miracle-working, powerful Jesus that wants him to be public. The other is threatened. The other is greatly threatened. And because of that, they want it stopped. And if that involves killing Jesus, so be it. Two very, very different manifestations of unbelief in this passage. So what is the common root of these two forms of unbelief? Why does it all matter? Well, it matters. We go to that verse frequently in John 20. The, the reason, the purpose for this book, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why do we have this on unbelief? Well, because belief is very, very important. Because belief is the way to eternal life. If I had a bit more time and I was unpacking with the kids this morning, that's exactly where we would have gone with that. This man didn't believe. He didn't have enough faith in the Lord Jesus. He wanted the things of himself rather than Jesus to get him to eternal life. Believing is how we get eternal life. Of course, we read that most famously in John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We know that eternal life is the escaping through Jesus of God's wrath that we so deserve. We read in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains. That's our reality, isn't it, in this state of unbelief, that apart from Jesus, all of us are under the wrath of God because we have all treated God with contempt. We have all put ourselves in the place of God, thought of ourselves higher than God. In that state of unbelief, you give him so little attention, so little affection, and so little obedience that there is nothing in that unbelief that identifies a follower of Jesus. And we know that Jesus is the only one, the only way that we can be saved from the wrath of God. That he is the only one who can provide us with eternal life because he himself is God in flesh. He is the Messiah. As he stood on that water, it is um, I who speak to you am he. As Jesus declares, doesn't he? It's me speaking from only the place that God could speak on top of the water. It's me. But in John 1, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Messiah, the one, the way to eternal life. He's the only one. He's the only one who can lay down his life for sinners. He is the only one who can rise from the dead. And anyone that receives him becomes a child of God. That's why this question of unbelief matters. Knowing what unbelief is, Knowing what it looks like is a matter of eternal life and death. And maybe some of you veteran Christians, some of us that have been here and doing this a while, think, this is nice, Jonathan's on an evangelistic stroll this morning, so I can switch off and I don't need to worry too much. I've got faith, eternal life, box set and check. I never thought I'd say this name in a sermon, but in March 2019, Kylie Jenner, became uh, the world's youngest self-made billionaire at the age of 21. Now, I'm going to dispute that she was self-made, but that's not a conversation for here. In case she didn't inherit it, she built some of it. There might not be such thing as a self-made billionaire, but there certainly isn't such thing as a self-made Christian. To believe that you are a self-made Christian is pride. What is the root cause of unbelief, it is pride. That is what links both of these unbeliefs. Why did Jesus' brothers 
want him to go to Jerusalem and do these miracles because they wanted to be the brothers of the famous guy. They wanted the spotlight. They wanted the glory. And if Jesus does all this stuff, yes, they're looking at me. So what Jesus meant when he said to them, I'm not going to go up to the feast. What he's saying is, I'm not going in the way that you want me to go. I'm not going to seek human approval in the way that you want me to go and seek human approval. You are after human praise. Your motives and your purpose for me going to the festival is utterly flawed. Do you know, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die. That's his purpose. And his brothers are there just like, we want more pals. We want more people to love us. We want to be adored by the people. Jesus does go. He does travel south. And what I find utterly fascinating, in fact, we'll read it first from verse 14. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Jesus doesn't go with the miraculous, but he goes and teaches I find this quite incredible because the assumption would be that Jesus would go and do the miraculous, I think. That Jesus would go and do things, see all these crowds drawn to him. But of course, by this point, there are plenty of people interested in him and gathering. But Jesus doesn't go to do the miraculous. Jesus goes to teach. Jesus goes with a message of truth. And you see, the truth that Jesus delivers is not what the brothers wanted, but, but Jesus goes from this place of God exaltation, not self-exaltation. He goes with, with the message that God comes first. And that exaltation of God comes at the price of humiliation for Jesus. If the brothers were going to believe in Jesus, it wasn't because he did an extra couple of miracles. It wasn't because they did the one that resonated with them. But if they were going to believe in Jesus, they were going to believe in him for who he is and what he does at Calvary. They must believe in the one through whom the glory of God has chosen, the one who will be infinitely shamed. The one who calls us to take up our cross and follow him. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus took on flesh. To be, to be despised, to be rejected, to be shamed for the glory of his father. And that is not what his brothers believe. What Jesus is getting out here is it's all about the glory of God. Yes, of course, in places Jesus points to his own glory. That is not uh, an opportunity for us to look to our own glory. None of you are Jesus. So we have none of the glory that the God-man did. 
but he shows us in human form what it is to perfectly live for the glory of God. We were looking, I reopened one of our baptism class books this week. And I was struck by the conversation between James and John, the sons of Zebedee in Mark 10. Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. You do not know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink from the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? What arrogance. What utter arrogance. Jesus, can we be the most important? Jesus, can we sit right there with you so that people, as they look at you, also see us? Can we sit with you there? And Jesus says to them, are you going to carry the weight of the judgment of the world? Are you going to take that upon your shoulders? Are you going to take Jonathan's sin and his shame on your shoulders and die for him? No, you're not. The bottom line is that there is no room for pride in a Christian heart because the root of unbelief is pride. It is so easy to put ourselves first, doesn't it? It is so easy for us to put our families first. It is so easy for us to put our careers first. When we look at God, we look at him with pride at times, don't we? We look at God and think somehow he has to justify himself to me. I look at God and I think, that's not fair. God, justify yourself to me. Because we look at him with pride. as this distorted view that somehow I am a level with God. None of us are more important than each other. None of us deserve Christ more than anybody else. None of us sitting in here deserve Christ any more than anybody that doesn't believe out there. Our social status, our life achievements, the behavior of our children, none of it means anything if our heart is not right with him. Friends, I could be a ministry 50 years. We could see thousands come to faith, churches planted all over the place. Phenomenal, wonderful ministry. And if my heart isn't right with God, none of it counts for anything for me. Friends, God cares about your heart. John 5, verse 43 and 44. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Ouch. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from God? I think this is one of the most important verses in the gospel of John. You cannot believe in Jesus if your root desire is to be praised by people. There's a wonderful quote from John Piper. Pride at its core is the craving for human approval. Faith at its core is humble gladness in the God of grace. Friends, let not our lives be driven by our need for approval. Let us not be driven by our desire to please people. 
the brothers of Jesus had not been born again. They saw, but they didn't really see. They knew what they had, but they didn't really know what they had. The root of their joy was the praise of man, and it was not the grace of God. That's what verse 5 means when he says, Jesus, brothers, do not believe. The second quote that I found wonderfully convicting this week from a pastor in America, Joel Beach. Pride is a devastating sin and is complex. Most sin turns us away from God, but pride directly attacks God. It lifts us above and against God, seeking to dethrone him by enthroning ourselves. If pride is at the heart of our life, faith cannot be. Do you know, Jesus speaks in, in no uncertain terms there in John 5. How can you believe in me since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? There doesn't seem like there's much room for both to sit side by side here. There doesn't look like there's much room for us to crave the, 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 the praise of people and the praise of God, but it is God and God alone. It seems to be everything that Jesus tells us. Grace tells us you don't deserve anything, but I'm giving you everything. Pride doesn't want to hear that. I want people to recognize something in me. I want to be important. I want people to praise me. I want people to applaud me. I want people to write books about me. That is not a heart that knows grace. That is a heart that knows pride. And that verse that strikes to the core of everything from John the Baptist in John 3.30, he must become greater, I must become less. He must. I must love my own desires, my own cravings, my own sinfulness, less and less and less. Not through my own strength, but because my love of Jesus is just growing and growing and his spirit is transforming my life. We must saturate ourselves in the love of God. Friends, do you struggle with pride? Flee from it? Run from it? Do everything that you can not to embrace it. That may mean removing yourselves from situations that you know you fall. Open the world and find your worth in the Son of Man who gave himself for you. There's one more on the slide, isn't there? I'll put one more in. There we go. We've quoted two men, so now let's quote the God man to finish. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily. And follow me. The brothers do come to believe. Certainly James does. I'm pretty confident the others do. But at the minute this is not their reality. The reality is not putting off themselves to follow Jesus. But the reality is there. Is their pride. There is no room for pride in the heart of a believer friends. Let us rid ourselves on it. And let us focus our eyes solely on him let us deny ourselves take up our cross and follow him let's pray
God eternal, God of all grace and of all mercy, we bow before your throne. We recognize the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus. And we recognize that in our hearts, that in, our, in and of ourselves, Lord, there is none of that glory. But you come and you dwell in us when we believe. Through your spirit, you come and you tabernacle, you dwell with us. God, rid us of our pride. Drive us to the cross. Make our hearts more and more and more thankful. Raise up in us such a gratitude for the Lord Jesus that every aspect of our life becomes Christ-centered, Christ-driven. We exalt you, Lord, for the things that you have done for us that only you could do. For the fact that we may even meet here and call ourselves children of God. All of it is because of you. Amen.